They say if you feed a speaker enough, he'll shorten his talk. So, in conclusion, <laughs> my name is Wilson. I'm an alcoholic. By the grace of God, I'm sober tonight. And that is the single most important thing that I can share with you from this podium in the next hour. It is by the grace of a loving God and the tender loving care of people like you in rooms like this that I have awakened for the last 11,185 mornings without a hangover. Now, I don't want you to spend the next hour trying to figure that out. So I've, I will tell you that calculates to 30 years, 7 months, and 14 days. And I can assure you that it impresses me a whole lot more than it impresses you. Because I have awakened to the realization somewhere along the way that I am walking, talking, breathing miracle of this fellowship. I owe everything that I am today. And during this time that I share with you tonight, if any time I sound like I'm bragging, I am bragging on you, not me. I am bragging on a God who saw enough hope left in this beaten down soul who arrived at Alcoholics Anonymous on June 26, 19, or July 26, 1982. And with that hope, he built a new human being and one that I am grateful to be today. Uh, I want to thank the committee, Donnie, and uh, especially Bruce, who picked us up at the airport and brought us here. Um, I want to thank all of the members of the committee, the people who, who prepared the baskets for uh, our room. We've been uh, as if there wasn't enough food around here to eat every time you turn around. We got another whole bucket full in our room. When I, 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 when every time I see one of those baskets, I think about the one time when I was speaking in a conference in Toronto, and apparently, you know, the, the committee had just asked the hotel to put baskets in all the speakers' rooms. And we had this beautiful basket, had fruit and nuts and some candy bars and some crackers, and right in the middle was a big bottle of champagne. <laughs> All five of us speakers got a conspiracy, and we came down to dinner that night. We came down carrying our bottles of champagne. The, the chairman of the weekend was, was mortified. <laughs> I said, that'll learn you. <laughs> um, I love Alcoholics Anonymous. I love conferences and conventions. I love anywhere I can go where I can gather with drunks. I've been fortunate enough to uh, have shared at AA conferences in 47 states and all the Canadian provinces. And what I have found is that no matter where I go, Alcoholics Anonymous is the same. It is the same language of the heart. It is the same drunks reaching out to help drunks. Now, in Southern California, they talk too fast. In Canada, they say, hey, for no good reason whatsoever. <laughs> Nobody's ever been explained that to me. Uh, in the South, we talk slowly. Don't confuse it with slow thinking, though. But wherever I go, now you think about this. Who other than us could walk into a room, literally anywhere in the world, and say, my name is Bill, and I'm an alcoholic, and I'm at home? 
I am with a room full of people who know me instantly. I don't have to explain myself to them. They know me. And I am among family and I'm among friends. I don't know anybody else in the world that can do that. We are so fortunate in that regard. I, I love Alcoholics Anonymous because it has given me the life that I never ever expected beyond my wildest dreams. And I want to share a little bit of my journey with you tonight. Um, I was born in North Georgia at a very young age. I got sober at a fairly young age. I was 39 years old when I got sober. Um, now I'm old and sober. In a couple of months I'll be 70 years old. Believe it or not, that's the oldest I've ever been. Um, and I, I, people ask how I'm doing, I say I'm fine, I'm getting older and slower, but if I leave a little earlier I can still get there on time. And that's what I try to do, to show up on time for wherever I can be, where there's another drunk and an opportunity to share. Uh, I believe, as has already been said this weekend, that I was born an alcoholic. I think the ism was there from the very first breath I took. At the age of 15, I added booze to the formula, and I began my journey into alcoholism. And I say that because from the very earliest memory I had, I felt different from other people. I felt I did not fit, I did not belong. I felt there was something missing in Bill that other people seemed to have, seemed to know, seemed to be. There was a missing, what I call, it. And if I could ever find it and get it, then I would be like other people. So I began what was to be a search, uh, consciously or subconsciously, for over 30 years to find it. Um, I was scared of people. My mom sent me to the grocery store to get something. I would wander all up and down the aisles for an hour looking rather than ask anybody, where are the pickles? I don't know if I was scared. He'd say, I'm not going to tell you where the pickles are. Get out of here. I, I, you know, but I was terrified of people. Now, I, I, I was always felt apart from. I felt like I was on the outside looking in. Now, the the uh, the kids that I grew up with would debate that with you. Last year, I went to my fiftieth high school reunion. Unfortunately, none of my classmates were there. It was just a whole bunch of old people. Um, <laughs> But they would tell you that Bill Sanders joined everything. I did. Joined everything. Church, school, scouts, you name it, I joined it, but I belonged to nothing. I was always the outsider. At the age of uh, 13, I went into the profession that was to be my profession for the next 50 years until I retired a few years ago. And that's the radio and television business. At the age of 13, I became what was purported then to be the youngest disc jockey in America. Uh, that record has long since been broken, but uh, it supposedly then I was the youngest DJ in America. And everybody assumed that that smart aleck kid every afternoon after school, spinning rock and roll records and bumping his gums was who I was. 
They didn't know that I was that same scared little kid hiding behind the anonymity of a microphone being somebody else. And I made a career for more than 25 years of being somebody else. Who? Well, it was whoever you wanted me to be. I became a master comedian. I could change philosophies. I could change religions. I could change uh, every belief system that I had at the drop of a hat because I would read you, figure out what you wanted from me, and that's what you were going to get. That became so true that by the time I reached the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous in 1982, I had no idea who Bill Sanders was. I didn't know what I believed. I didn't know what I felt. I was a lost soul, physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. I didn't drink that much in high school. I grew up in a very small town, and if any of you from, or came from small towns, you know there's one thing they're real short on in small town, and that's anonymity. <laughs> everybody knows everybody else's business. And if my little Southern Baptist mother had ever caught me drinking, I would not have needed Alcoholics Anonymous. I would have needed an undertaker. But then I went off to college, 40 miles from my hometown, suddenly thrust into a student body at the University of Georgia that was three times the population of my hometown. And nobody cared how much I drank. Nobody cared whether I went to class or not. Nobody paid any attention. So I began my journey into the depths of alcoholism. It happened slowly. It happened quietly at times. It, uh, you know, I, I've never in, I've never in 30 years talked to a single alcoholic that knew at what point they crossed that line from being a drinker to being a drunk to being an alcoholic. I don't know when that happened. I know now that it goes back a lot further than I used to claim that it did. But I got, I spent four years in Athens at the University of Georgia and I got, I, I, I got into a lot of trouble in school. I was constantly in trouble. And so much so that they almost named the, the bench in the Dean of Men's office outside his office with my name plate on it. Because I occupied it more than probably any other male student at the university. I was constantly doing things to get in trouble. We have a great tradition at the University of Georgia that you folks are not probably not familiar with, and that is during the football season after every winning game where Georgia wins the game, at the moment the game ends, they begin to ring the chapel bell in the tower at the chapel on the north end of the campus. And the chapel bell will ring from the time the game ends until midnight. And it's a great honor to be a bell ringer. They have a roster in the library of the University of Georgia that goes back to the beginning of the last century that in 15-minute intervals tells who rang the bell on what day after what game. I rang that chapel bell. My name is not in that roster. <laughs> I think it had something to do with the fact that I was ringing the bell at 3 o'clock in the morning on Easter Sunday. In case you're not a big football fan, the season's pretty well over by then. Constantly in trouble for things I did. One night, a bunch of us were in one of our uh, friend's apartments uh, drinking until all hours of the morning, and 
It was about 2 o'clock in the morning, and I had gone through the various stages of my drinking, and I had reached the blithering idiot stage. And uh, the guys at the we were in had a, an antique gun collection hanging on the wall, and he was proud of it. It was worth thousands of dollars. Come down through his family. And I reached up on the wall, and I grabbed down an old long-barrel Colt twenty-two pistol and started waving it around like Matt Dillon wide up. Pointed at my roommate and said, stick him up. And he threw up his hands, and I squeezed the trigger. And there was a sound like thunder. And in an instant, my roommate was lying on the floor in front of me in a pool of blood. They were to tell us a few hours later at a local hospital that my roommate would live, but that he would never walk again. The bullet had severed his spine. Very strange thing happened in the early hours of that next morning. My roommate reached up from a hospital bed and he put his hand on my arm and said, Bill, don't blame yourself. It was an accident. I know you didn't mean to do it. It could just as easily have been the other way around. Don't blame yourself. He had forgiven me immediately. But I didn't forgive myself for more than 20 years because I didn't know how. It was not until you people gave me the beauty and the wonder and the magic of the fourth and the fifth and the sixth, seventh, eighth and ninth steps that I was able to find forgiveness and to find peace and to find some serenity. Instead, I used it as an excuse to crawl deeper and deeper into the bottle, drinking more and more to make the pain go away, to make the guilt go away. And the day came when there wasn't enough drink to do that. So I went to the college infirmary over a period of a few weeks and I amassed a supply of sleeping pills telling the do various doctors that I was having trouble sleeping. And after I got a good supply, I waited until one Friday afternoon when my new roommate was headed home from uh, uh, to show his family his brand new car he'd bought, first new car he'd ever bought, and he went home uh, to show it to them. And I watched him as he pulled out of the parking lot of the dormitory. And I closed the drapes and I sat down on the side of the bed and I emptied what was later determined to be somewhere between 50 and 60 sleeping pills out on the nightstand. And one by one and two by two swallowed them down, turned out the lights and pulled up the covers. For more than 20 years I believe that it was a huge coincidence. Love that word. Big coincidence that my roommate's brand new car conked out at the city limits of Athens had to be towed back to the dealership, and he came back into that dorm room, saw me, knew the state of mind I had been in, and called an ambulance. I use that word coincidence because I've come to love the definition I heard in these rooms, that a coincidence is in reality a miracle in which God chooses to remain anonymous. I believe that was the first of many times that the God you people introduced to me to looked down and said, Big boy, I'm not through with you yet. When I think about all of the crashed cars, the insane behavior, the crazy places I found myself in, I know tonight someone had to be watching. Someone had to be looking over this helpless, hopeless soul. It was immediately decided that I was in serious need of help. And so I was taken for my first trip to the neighborhood shrink. And over the next 20 years, I cannot tell you how many of those people I went to see. 
counselors, psychiatrists, psychologists, psychological social workers, you name it, I went to see all of them and left every one of their offices damning them because not one single one ever did one single thing to help me. Now, we've got this thing around here we call rigorous honesty. It forces me to admit that there is a remote possibility one or more of those people might have been able to help me if I had ever once told them the truth. Second or third question, think you might have a drinking problem? No, I drink fine. And they go off treating something else. One of the shrinks I went to was a very famous shrink. Um, he and his partner had had a patient about whom they had written a book. And it was about a woman who had three distinct personalities living inside her body. And they had written a book about her called The Three Faces of Eve. They ended up making a motion picture about that. And about the time I was seeing this doctor was when that movie came out. Joanne Woodward got Best Actress. The picture got Best Movie of that year. And, and I would I question my doctor over and over about this woman. And, of course, with a patient confidentiality, he would tell me very, very little. But I wanted to know more about this woman who had three personalities living inside her body. It was important that I find out about that. Because I felt like, well, I felt like if I could ever get my personalities down to just three, <laughs> I'd be cool. <clears throat> but see, I've always had these conventions that go on up here in my head. In those conventions, they meet and they talk and they vote and they decide where I ought to go and what I ought to do and who I ought to see and who I ought to be with. And they'll argue and argue and argue and argue. I wish I could say when I got sober that they went home. They didn't. They're still there. They're still there. Now, I hate to tell you all this because, well, I don't want to hurt your feelings, but uh, they don't like you. Don't do anything I can't, they can to keep me away from you. You know, I always say, if I miss one of my regular meetings, um, I have discovered that missing the next meeting is a little bit easier. And missing the next one after that is a whole lot easier. And it's about time then that they call the meeting to order and say, see, you don't need all those meetings. You don't need to hang out with those people. And that's when I say, shut up, I'm going to a meeting. And I get on the phone to my sponsor. Uh, those voices I know are at the heart of my disease, and they're always going to be there. But see, I don't listen to them much anymore. Even when they're banging the gavel and calling the meeting to order, I just go, da-da-da-da-da-da, and go think about something else or call one of my sponsees. Um, I did exit the University of Georgia. I did it with a diploma. I don't know if I earned it or if they just said, let's get him out of here. But I've had it for over 50 years, and I'm damned if I'm giving it back. I ended up going to work in, um, in uh, radio in another city. I was a uh, newsman and a talk show host. And um, I met a beautiful girl, decided that I really liked her and wanted to make her a part of my life. After a few dates, uh, I thought about, well, you know, you need to cut down on your drinking if you want this to be a part of your life. A few more dates, I discovered that was not necessary. That woman liked to drink just as much as I did. And 
we'd go to the club every night after I'd get off the 6 o'clock news and go to the club and, and have a bite of dinner sometimes and then drink until they closed. And at 1 or 2 o'clock in the morning, I'd go home, fall into bed, get up the next morning, and have to sign the radio station on the air at 6 a.m. Now, if you want to know what hell is, Hell is trying to sound cheerful on the radio at 6 o'clock in the morning when your mouth tastes like the bottom of a birdcage <clears throat> and your head feels like the Russian army did maneuvers on it the night before. <clears throat> My radio audiences never knew how many times they heard me reading the morning news headlines lying flat on my back on the floor, microphone pulled down over my face. It was the only way I could get the room to quit going round and round and round. Over the next 50 years in broadcasting, I had a, a lot of wonderful experiences. I met a lot of wonderful people. I love the profession that I had, and I am grateful for all of the, the joy that it gave me and for what it did for me and for my family. I had my share of um, blunders in, uh, once on the newscast in, uh, of a woman, very prominent woman, who had uh, died in a local rest home after a long illness. I announced to the world she died in a restroom as her family stood by and watched. Um, once in the early 60s, I was sent to by my news director at WSB Radio in Atlanta to do an interview. He said, go grab the tape recorder, go do an interview. You're the only one available to go. I said, okay, fine. Who am I going to interview? He said, going to interview Lyndon Johnson. I said, okay. And I'm thinking, you know what, Bill, you can't do this without a little fortification. So I stopped at one of my neighborhood bars and I had a couple of quick sh sh shots. Got back in the car, drove down to the downtown Atlanta hotel and walked into the lobby, got on the elevator, went up to the designated floor. I was met at the door of the elevator by the Secret Service. They frisked me, checked my credentials, looked over my tape recorder. It ushered me into this suite of this uh, hotel. And this giant of a man came over and grabbed me by the hand and said, Come on in, boy, and have a seat. And he ushered me over to this sofa. And he sat, I sat down on the sofa, and there's a, a, a coffee table, and then another sofa where he sat. And I glanced down at that coffee table and realized in the middle of that coffee table was a couple of glasses and a jug of Jack Daniels. He said, Before we do this thing here, let's, uh, let's have us a little snort. Sounded good to me. He poured my glass full, and then he poured his glass full. And I began, I should explain at this point, back then you did not just walk in and sit down and start interviewing the President of the United States. You had to go through what was known as the pre-interview interview. That's where you tell him what you're going to ask him, and he tells you whether or not he's going to answer it. And they don't get away with that anymore, but they did it back then. Lyndon Johnson got away with a lot of things. Um, <laughs> So I'm throwing out questions, and he's saying, yeah, that's fine, we'll talk about that. And no, I don't want to, let's don't get into that. And I'm sipping away on my drink. Every time I get about three swallows down, he reaches over and fills up the glass again. A few minutes later, I'm just going, she, she was getting hot in here. <laughs> about five minutes after that, I realize, uh-oh, this man is drunker than you are. Right after that, he said, all right, turn that thing on, let's do it. I turned on the tape recorder, and we started the actual interview. And the interview went well. I asked great questions. He had great answers. 
it was a good interview until I got to a point in the interview where I asked him a question about his wife, Ladybug. <laughs> it's at this point that I can always tell the age of the audience. Because there's somebody out there going, her name was Lady Bird, not Ladybug. <laughs> Thank God he thought it was funnier than y'all did. great experiences. On another occasion, I and a bunch of my uh, cohorts were invited to a reception at the White House, uh, and 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 um, it was a, it was a reception with an open bar and hors d'oeuvres and all that. And I could care less about the hors d'oeuvres, but I went straight to the open bar, and I began to drink and had a great time. I will never forgive a couple of my friends who grabbed me on each side and ushered me out of the White House right before I was ready to tell President Reagan my plan for straightening out this mess we were in in this country. I have no idea what those suggestions were. They had to have been good, but I never got a chance to share them. Um, along the way, God blessed my wife and me with a beautiful little blue-eyed, blonde-haired baby girl. And I was going to be the world's greatest dad. But you see, my disease had other plans. You see, my disease outfitted me with something that I don't know if you can relate to or not. But my disease along the way outfitted with me what I call my alcoholic blinders. Like this. They, it only allowed me to see what it wanted me to see. Those blinders did not allow me to see that the only look that was ever in my little girl's eyes was a look of fear and of hate and of disgust. Those blinders didn't allow me to see that my little girl didn't invite friends to come spend the night. Never knew when dad's going to come home in the middle of the night in a drunken rage, smashing furniture, throwing TV sets through plate glass windows and dragging her out of the bed, emotionally abusing her and berating her. Even when I found under her mattress, when I was changing the mattress, I found her diary and did what I shouldn't have done. I opened it and read, and on the page it jumped off. I wish my daddy was dead, and maybe there'd be some peace in our home. But the blinders were firmly in place. During the later years of my drinking that I got into to management and to uh, uh, other aspects of the business, I had to do a lot of traveling around the country to New York and to Washington quite a few times a year, and to Chicago and L.A. And um, I used to say I was scared of flying. I've come to realize I never really was scared of flying. I, I, I was scared of crashing is what I was scared of. Uh, but I would always handle that by getting to the airport a little early, and I could have me a few drinks before I got on the plane, and I'd be relaxed. Didn't matter. I, they could bump all they wanted to, and I'd go, wee! <laughs> and that worked great. Except, sometimes I, 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 well, sometimes I'd forget to get on the plane. <laughs> now, I'll tell you something ironic. For years, 
For several years, our hometown airline, Delta Airlines, had a series of ads that ran all over the country. And the theme of the ad was, Delta is ready when you are. Now, here's the ironic thing. I did the voiceover for those commercials that ran on both radio and television all up and down the East Coast for several years. It was financially very good to me. But dang it, they lied. Delta ain't ready when you are. They'll leave you. You know, here I was lying on these commercials. You know, all I, had, all, I didn't have but one line on that commercial. The line was, Delta is ready when you are. Uh-uh. <laughs> so I do what any good drunk would do. I just get on an airplane, another airplane, go somewhere else. Call home that night. How's your meeting in New York going? I don't know. I'm not in New York. Where are you? I'm in, I, I, I'm in New Orleans. More and more often, I wake up in strange places, in strange cities, in strange beds with strange people. Uh, I don't remember ever waking up with a bed full of naked Mexicans, but... <laughs> Considering the number of blackouts I had, it's not impossible, I guess. But I, I don't remember it. I consider myself for years to be a classy social drinker. I can tell you folks, if you have to drink in order to be social, you are not a social drinker. I thought it was normal to have a few drinks before you go to the cocktail party so you could get ready. I was a snob of a drinker. I had, I loved to, I had to do a lot of entertaining and I loved taking people to some of the fanciest places in Atlanta on expense account. And I would walk into the lobby of this posh downtown Atlanta restaurant and the maitre d' in his tuxedo would greet me by name, usher me to the door of the lounge and wave, wave at the bartender and by the time I reached my usual seat he had my drink pre-mixed and set right there in front of me. And I love taking people to see that because I felt like it made a statement. I know tonight it most definitely made a statement. It's just not the one I thought it was making. I was, as I said, a snob too. I would tell you the optimum temperature for drinking vodka was 31.5 degrees Fahrenheit. Found out that's wrong. The optimum temperature for drinking vodka is 108 degrees Fahrenheit. That's the temperature underneath the front seat of my car where I kept that bottle. <laughs> I can tell you it's not classy when you wake up in the morning and you look down and there's dew all over your clothes and you blink your eyes and realize you're looking out from underneath a bush in a downtown Atlanta city park. Not a good place to be. And I blink again and realize I'm looking up the nostrils of a policeman's horse. There is no good answer to the question of what are you doing here? Other than where is here? It is not classy when you're pulled from a car you've planted into a steel post on the side of an Atlanta city street and you're frisked and cuffed and put into that cage in the back of the cop car and headed off to jail. And I'm talking to this young rookie cop saying, son, you're making the biggest mistake you ever made in your life. I am not drunk. Ain't no way I could be drunk. I've, no, I've only had two beers. 
Uh, I've become convinced through the years that uh, there is this school somewhere that every one of us, sometime or another, in a blackout, is hauled to that school. And in that school, they only teach one thing. If you're ever stopped by the cops, never admit to more than two beers. <laughs> you think about it. You ever watch these cop shows on TV? They get a guy out, he can't even stand up. Bam, hit the ground. Having too much to drink, Mr. Zuhay, it's two beers. <laughs> well, about my wife and I were watching it, and they got this guy out of the car and propped him up against the car, and he slid down on the ground, boom. They picked him up and stood him up again, and down he went again. Cop looked down at him and said, Pops, you had a little too much to drink? He said, No, I ain't had it but three beers. I went, Oh, hell, he missed class. <laughs> But I'm arguing with this young cop all the way to the to jail, and he gets me out and puts me on that breathalyzer doohickey, and uh, I blew into it, and it registered point two eight. I said, "This is absolutely impossible. There is no way on the face of this earth that I can be registered point two eight on two beers." The cop agreed with me. I assure you that was the only thing we agreed on that night. <laughs> it is also not classy nor is it smart to go to court for a DUI drunk. In case you've never done it, judges don't like it. I had a friend of mine who was a lawyer who said, Bill, don't sweat it. It's first DUI. It's no big deal. Go in, when they call your name and say, how do you plead? You say, your honor, I plead nolo contendere. I said, what does that mean? He said, it means you plead no contest. He'll slap you on the wrist, give you a little fine, send you on the way, everything will be cool. Okay, got it. Well, like anything else in Bill's life, I had to get <clears throat> fortified before I went to court. So I had a few drinks the night before and a few more the next morning when I got up and Went into the courtroom and sat down and waited for them to call my name. They called, seemed like about 6,000 names before they got to mine. Finally, they called my name. I stood up. The clerk said, Mr. Sanders, how do you plead? I said, Your Honor, I plead Nimlo Nilar um, Guilty. And he threw the book at me. I couldn't remember that damn Latin to save my life. By now, my wife went in her direction and I went in my direction. Our marriage was falling apart. Counseling had, counselors had told us, give it up. The marriage is hopeless. You're totally incompatible. And, uh, you know, my wife, when I would be gone three or four days, didn't care where, who I was with or where I was sleeping. She would go out at night and couldn't come home at all hours and, I didn't ask where she'd been, didn't care. And um, one night she decided that uh, she was going somewhere, and I'm sitting in my recliner chair, sitting there holding a bottle, staring at the television. She's gone about two and a half hours. She comes back in, stands in front of me. I'm still sitting there in that same chair, still holding that bottle, still staring at the TV, probably trying to decide whether to turn it on or not. And uh, she said, guess where I've been? And I said, who gives a... Uh, who cares? 
and, 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 and she did something really weird. She didn't say anything. She flipped a white poker chip into my lap. And I looked down at it, and I looked back at her, and I looked back down at that chip. And I said, I don't know where you've been, but if that's all you won, you had a lousy night. <laughs> and then I noticed that chip had two little A's on it. And she told me she had been to an A&A &A meeting. And I went into an absolute flying, pluperfect rage. Because I knew, I knew beyond any shadow of a doubt, there was no way on the face of this earth that that woman was an alcoholic. There's no way. Because if she was an alcoholic, then she just couldn't be an alcoholic. That's just all there was to it. But she didn't care what I thought. She just started going to meetings and going to meetings and going to meetings and going to meetings. Some fool nonsense about 90, 90, and 90 something. And I'm waiting for the other shoe to fall. I'm waiting for you. You're bigger drunk than I am. You need this worse than I do. Never said a word. Just going to meetings. Going to meetings. There were a few little clues left around the house. For example, I'm going to the bathroom and lift the toilet seat, and there's how it works. Tape to the lid. <laughs> She knew where I'd see it. <laughs> Finally, the other shoe did fall. She said, uh, I'm going tonight to pick up a 90-day chip, and I'd like you to be there. I said, nope, 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 not going to happen. No, no way, not in this life. A few tears, a few deals, and I said, okay, fine. On one condition, I'm going in my car. I said, where are we going? She said, we're going to a place called 8111 Club. You just follow me. And I followed her a few miles from where we lived and put it in the driveway of this little house sitting up on a hill in a grove of trees, a home that had been turned into an AA clubhouse. And I drove up that driveway thinking, ooh, this is weird. Because <clears throat> I passed that house a hundred times on the way home from the bar and look up there and see all those cars and say, you know, Bill, you ought to get to know the guy that lives in that house because he obviously has a party every night. <laughs> well, that night old Bill went to the party. I uh, slipped in the back door behind a post in the back of the room. And for the next hour, I witnessed the biggest bunch of weirdos I'd ever seen in my life. They read all that stuff at the beginning of the meeting, and 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 uh, I didn't understand any of it. And there's this one guy, when they're getting through, he's doing this, waving his arm. And I'm saying, you know, somebody tell that man where the bathroom is. Well, they finally pointed to him, and he stood up and right out loud told him his name and said that he was an alcoholic. And I'm thinking, I don't think I'd have told that if I'd have been him. <laughs> then he told him that he had gotten three DUIs. And you know what those people did? They busted out laughing. I never want to forget what went through my mind. What went through my mind was, why are these people laughing? Don't they know what they are? They're alcoholics. They've got nothing to laugh about. I can tell you tonight, I thank God every day of my life for the laughter that we share in these rooms. Because there is magic and there is power and there is healing in that laughter. 
And wherever I go, I say, if you don't have a home group that laughs a lot, go find one that does. I do, I do like to caution newcomers, don't laugh all the time or they'll come get you. <laughs> just, just, meeting went on, it seemed like forever, and finally, they, uh, stood up and said, the only thing I recognize is the Lord's Prayer, and I struck out across the parking lot, getting out of there. And I got about two-thirds of the way to my car, and something grabbed me by the shoulder that felt like a steel vice, spun me around, and I found myself looking up into the face of a man seven feet, eleven inches tall. I can tell you tonight he's only six six, but he looked a hell of a lot taller that night. <laughs> kind of like that big guy that, and, and, and I, I, um, you know, he started telling me about drinking moonshine. Oh, he was different. I recognized him from the meeting because everybody else said, my name's Joe, I'm an alcoholic, my name's Mary, I'm an alcoholic. He got up and introduced himself and said, howdy, my name's Floyd and I'm a grateful hillbilly drunk. Give me a break. <laughs> and out there in the parking lot, he starts talking about drinking moonshine up in the mountains and about his fifth grade education. And I'm saying, I think, why didn't he, why is he telling me all this? The man don't even know who I am. I found out later he knew exactly who I was because she'd been talking about me in those meetings. <laughs> People coming out and getting their cars and Floyd's going, blah, 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 blah. Remember, I went in my own car so I can get out of here. My wife comes out, smiles, goes, bye, gets in her car and leaves. Then it's just me and Floyd. <laughs> Floyd talked, tell me about his DUI he got driving the school bus. <laughs> about getting drunk out in the woods in the wintertime and falling down on the ground, his face freezing to the ground. And they had to pour coffee on him to get him up. <laughs> now I'm not hearing most of this because I'm busy making a deal with God. Well, Floyd talked on there for, I don't know, about three or four days. I finally got away from him, got in my car, went home, walked in the house. My wife started to say something. I said, don't open your mouth. Don't you ever try to get me back to that nut bin again. And she didn't. And the roller coaster ride of my insanity and my loneliness and my fear and my anxiety went further and further and further down. Until the afternoon of July 26, 1982, when I came out of a week-long blackout drunk, whole week missing. Don't know where I've been, don't know what I did. But when I came out of that blackout, I'm sitting in my recliner chair, and I look down, and in my left hand is an empty bottle. And in my right hand, there's a fully loaded and cocked 22 pistol. And I had not remembered picking up either one of them. And the thought that went through my head was, this all there is? Because if it is, you can have it. And through the fog of that... Monday evening at twilight, there came a voice, the voice of God, not exactly, the voice of an angel, not really. It was the voice of a beautiful, wonderful, lovable, strapping, hillbilly drunk named Floyd. <laughs> and the voice that cut through that hangover was simply this. When I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, I expected God to open the gates of heaven and let me in. He didn't. 
But he opened the gates of hell and let me out. And if where I was on the evening of July 26, 1982 is any closer to hell, I hope I never know it. And I got up out of my chair and I walked into the bathroom and I cleaned up as best I could. Gargled about a half a bottle of Listerine. Drank the rest. <laughs> you know, for years in telling my story, I didn't tell that part. I'm a career alcoholic. And to have to admit that my last drink was Listerine. That's disgraceful. I mean, it could have at least been 24-year-old Chevis Regal. It was blame Mr. Listerine. But there it is. That's the truth. I got in my car and I drove back to that little house on the hill and I sat door and got it behind that post in the back of the room. Now, the God that you people introduced me to in this fellowship has a sense of humor. And I looked around at the front of the room there, sitting there chairing the meeting, was my wife. She didn't see me until the end of the meeting. A man got up and said, he held up that white chip and he said, if you're sick and tired of being sick and tired and you want to join our way of life, come get this chip. And I took the longest walk I've ever taken in my life to the front of that room. And a man pressed a white poker chip into my trembling, sweating hand. And I walked back and sat down. I choose tonight, with all my heart, to believe that an old Bill Sanders walked to the front of that room that night and died. And a new one walked away. Because as I said, by the grace of God, and the tender loving care and people like you in rooms like this, I have not had a drink since that moment. I thank you and I thank God. You told me very soon I needed to get a sponsor. No problem whatsoever in broadcasting. Got lots of sponsors. Pick one. I said, how about Delta? You explain what you meant. And I decided to get a sponsor scientifically. I looked around for the sweetest, kindest, roly-poliest, white-haired old granddaddy that I could find. One that I knew would pat me on the head every day and say, you're a good boy. I've never seen anybody work this program as good as you. Took about three weeks. I found him. Snow white hair. Roly-polier than I am. Perpetual smile a mile wide. And I asked a man by the name of Doc Crandall to be my sponsor. Biggest mistake I ever made in my life. <laughs> I knew I was in trouble the first night. He said, sure, I'll be your sponsor. Let's discuss the rules. Rules? What rules? <laughs> simple, simple. Don't worry about it. When you wake up every morning, you're going to roll out of that bed onto your knees, and you're going to ask God, as you understand him, to keep you sober today. And the last thing you're going to do at night before you get back in that bed is you're going to get back down on your knees, and you're going to say thank you. I said, well, the doc, I mean, I, I, I got to tell you, I grew up in the Southern Baptist Church. Church doors open, we were there. I, I got a long way away from it. I do know prayer is important, Doc, but I just got to be honest with you. I, 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 I'm not comfortable with this knee business. He looked me in the eye and said, I don't remember saying a damn thing about you being comfortable. <laughs> when I drew myself up, he couldn't talk to me like that. I had almost 30 days. I said, Doc, I thought this was a program of suggestion. 
He says, it is. I suggest you do it or get you another sponsor. <laughs> That's how we began our relationship. Then he gave me that book. My God, was he a fanatic about that book. He said, I want you to take this book home. I want you to, for the next two or three weeks, study. Didn't say read, said study the first 164 pages. And when you get through doing that, you come back and we're going to sit down and talk about how you can make those principles in Chapter 5 work in your life. I said, I can do that. I stopped at the office supply place on the way home. I got some legal pads, I got some highlighters, and I got some sharp pencils. And I went home and I cleared off my desk and I laid it all out and I went to work. I highlighted and I underlined and I wrote the margin and I wrote page after page in those those uh, legal pads and I struck through the steps that didn't have anything to do with me and I, uh, <laughs> I, I jotted down a few I thought of that y'all had obviously missed. And, and uh, <clears throat> after about two and a half weeks I called him and said, Doc, I'm ready to talk. He said, hot dog, come on over. I went over to his house, he ran back in his old recliner and I laid everything out on his coffee table. He said, all right, son, lay it on me. I opened up the book there to chapter 5 and I said, okay, Doc, looking here at this first step, as I interpret, and that's as far as I got, boy, that step don't need your interpreting. It needs your doing. I said, but, 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 but Doc, what I think it means is, he said, son, it's in English. It says exactly what it means. And if you look real close, you'll notice they put little numbers by those steps so smart college boys like you can follow along with the rest of us. God, he was tough. And he was a fanatic about that book. I'd come to a meeting and say, Doc, I, can we talk for a few minutes? I got a personnel problem at work I want to discuss with you. You got a lot more business experience than me. Let me lay out this situation on my staff. He said, what step are you using on it? I said, what? I said, Doc, you don't understand. This ain't got nothing to do with steps. I'm talking about real life stuff here. He said, you go home and look again. And I went home and got it down there. There wasn't anything about personnel problem. I went back the next night. I said, Doc, I looked. There wasn't anything there. Let me lay out my situation. Go look again. Well, after about the fourth night he's doing that, and I'm riding home thinking, oh, my God. How did I get hooked up with this crazy old bastard? <laughs> but I did it. I opened the book, went to chapter 5, down through the steps, da, 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 da. And there it was. There was the answer. And over and over and over again, he sent me back to that book and back to those steps. Until one day, the light went on in this thick skull of mine that there is nothing, nothing, absolutely nothing that is going to happen in the life of this alcoholic. The answer is in that book and in those steps. A few years ago we came out with a big big deal fourth edition of the big book. Wasn't any big deal to me because at the time it came out I was reading the 26th edition of the big book. Now wait a minute before you think I'm crazy. At the time when the fourth edition came out I had read the first 164 pages 26 times cover to cover. And every time I read it, they had rewritten that sucker. <laughs> There's stuff in there that was not there the last time I read it. I told you I'm a highlighter and an underliner. I don't know who did this over here. This is nothing but this. Brand new stuff. It's a magic book. <laughs> I shared this at a conference out in California a few years ago to a couple of thousand people. 
And this one little girl lingered after the, everybody had come up and said nice things and left. And she said, I need to ask you something. Do you really believe that? I said, sweetheart, I'm going to tell you what I believe. I believe that God speaks to me through this book. I believe he reveals himself to me what I need to see when I need to see it. Which behooves me to open that book on a regular basis and read it. I also believe that God speaks to me through you people. I quite often say, I pray for God's will and go to a meeting to find out what it is. Now, it usually is not who I think it's going to be. I mean, my God, look who saved my life. I thought it would have been a Ph.D. It was a hillbilly drunk with a fifth grade education. <laughs> Incidentally, one more note on Floyd. Floyd and I remain friends, dear friends, and he died last fall. And his son called me and asked me to do the eulogy at his, at his service. And I shared my experience with, with Floyd, with his family. And I was happy to be able to say, I do believe that last Saturday, God did open the gates of heaven and let Floyd in. And I have no doubt that he said to him, welcome home, my good and faithful servant. Because Floyd Blackwell touched thousands and thousands of lives through his inimitable, lovable, hillbilly fashion. But God does speak to me through sometimes the people I least expect it. And, um, you know, I, I always share God's never spoken to me through a trumpet. He's never spoken to me through a burning bush. I asked my sponsor one time if a burning sofa counted, and he said it didn't. <laughs> my sponsor was, let's do the steps and do them now. One, you finish one, you go to two, you finish two, you go to three. And we're whizzing along through the steps, and we get up to about six. And I realized we are flying through these steps. And I fell into my sponsor's favorite trap. I said, Doc, what do you do when you get through working the steps? Without battling an eye, he looked at me and grinned and said, You die, and you lay real still because you're dead. <laughs> Either way. Um, on November 25th, 1985, my sponsor, Doc, went on a 12-step call and never came home. As he and another man struggled to take a shotgun away from a suicidal young alcoholic that Doc had been trying to help get sober for several years, the gun accidentally went off somebody's finger. We don't know who hit the trigger. And Doc caught the blast in the stomach and died before he reached the hospital. He gave his life doing what he'd rather do than anything on this earth, and that's trying to save the life of a drunk. That evening I sat in his den and I felt a loneliness come over me I hadn't felt in a long time. I felt a fear come creeping back in that I thought had long gone. And I could think only of how can I go on, how can I stay sober without the man who planted me in these steps, without the man who kicked my behind when I needed it and who put his arms around my shoulder when I needed it. How can I go on? And in the quiet stillness of that evening the answer came. You do it by doing what he taught you to do and what his sponsor before him taught him and his sponsor before him taught him. All the way back to that fateful night of May 11th, 1935, when the broken down stockbroker and the has-been doctor sat in that gatehouse in Akron and said, do you think we might stay sober if we help one another? 
I believe that God in his infinite and compassionate wisdom in 1935, or if you prefer, when Bill got sober in 34, I believe he looked down and said the lowly alcoholic has suffered for long enough. He's been the outcast of the world for long enough. I've got to give him a way out. And what a way he gave us. He could have said, put him away in colonies like lepers so they can't contaminate the world. He could say, throw him in jail and lock him up and throw away the keys. Many of us probably should have been. He could have said, just let him die. He did none of those things. Instead, he gave us each other. And he gave us more love and more laughter and more joy and more happiness than most of us could have ever dreamed of in a hundred lifetimes. And I think, I believe with all my heart that he did one thing more. I think he gave us a one-on-one -on -one relationship with him that few people on this earth will ever experience. I think we're the luckiest people that walk the face of the earth today. Now, after Doc's death, I was surrounded by the most wonderful little old handful of snot-nosed sponsees that anybody could ever have. <laughs> and those little guys circled the wagons around me. They dragged me to meetings when I wanted to hide. They made me share when I wanted to isolate. And they loved me and they cared for me until I could walk the walk again, and I owe them forever for it. Now, I have to admit to you now that I did something I do not recommend. I was looking for another sponsor just like Doc, and I couldn't find him. So for the next year and a half, I sponsored myself. Uh-huh, oh. <laughs> it took that long to wake up to the reality that I had a damn fool for a sponsor, and an even bigger fool for a sponsee. Because you see, I'm an alcoholic. My brain can convince me of anything. My brain has got the greatest rationalizer in the world, and it ain't gone yet. It's still there. That's why I have a sponsor today. Well, I knew I needed to get a sponsor. And um, I, I, I started looking around. Somebody had recommended somebody to me, and I said, no, I don't want him. See, my first sponsor had said I had two diseases, alcoholism and terminal uniqueness. And to treat the terminal uniqueness, he made, used to make me go to the big book, to what was then page 449 in the big book. And said, I want you to read out loud every day for a month, pages 448 and 449 in the big book. It's now 417 and 418, I believe. Um, and he made me do that. I think he did it about three, it may have been four times. It was enough times that I said to myself, if I ever meet the guy that wrote that, I'm going to punch his lights out. Well, that fall, I got a call from Omaha, Nebraska, asking me to come and share the Cornhusker Roundup. And I went to Omaha, and my wife and I checked into our room, and I picked up a copy of the program, and I looked at it, and I went, oh, boy. My wife said, what is it? I said, he's here. <laughs> Who? Paul O. She said, who's that? I said, it's him. <laughs> Met Dr. Paul that weekend. Didn't punch him. Pretty nice guy. Spent a little time with him. Not much. A month and a half later, I was invited to share at a conference in northern Pennsylvania, a place called Cook Forest. 
I went up there and they had all the speakers in one cottage. Guess who's right across the hall? <laughs> Paul and Max, his wife. Spent more time with him that weekend. Pretty nice guy. A month and a half later, I was invited to Longview, Texas. Uh-huh, he was there. And it was at that weekend that he came up to me and said, Bill, we're having the uh, anniversary of my home group, home group in Laguna Beach in uh, October. Would you come out and, 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 and be our speaker? Now, folks, I'm going to swear to you, I did not mean to say what I said. I didn't plan to say what I said. When I got through, I went, I don't believe I said that. But I said, yes, I'll come if you'll be my sponsor. And for the last 10 years of his life, that wonderful little man was a wonderful and dear sponsor. Our AA birthdays were four days apart, and every year my wife and I would fly out to Laguna and spend the weekend, or spend the week with Paul and Max, and those wonderful, wonderful experiences I will cherish for the rest of my life. He taught me so much, not only about acceptance, but about loving oneself and about loving the people around you and about letting go of anxiety and of hatred and of, of uh, uh, um, resentments. And uh, I can still hear his voice today very often. Paul died in May of 2000 and I did not wait but less than 24 hours until I placed a call to Bellevue, Nebraska and I'm asking man and Dick Martin to be my sponsor. He's a good sponsor, isn't he, Jim? Jim and I share the, the same sponsor. Actually, I don't particularly care for Dick all that much. I really ask him to be my sponsor because I love his wife, Peg, to death. <laughs> She's the sweetest little thing in the world. Um, I believe in sponsorship. And I'm going to talk a few minutes about sponsorship. I had my first request to be a sponsor when I was uh, six months sober. This young man came up to me and asked me after a meeting if I'd be a sponsor, and I said, uh, no, I hadn't got enough sobriety. And I walked out in the parking lot and I told Doc what I'd done. I said, that was the right thing. Well, he says, no, it wasn't the right thing. You go back in there and tell him yes. I said, but Doc, he said, how long's he got? I said, three days. How long have you got? About a little over six months. He said, you got six months of experience. Get back in there and tell him yes. So I did. His name was Ross. Turned out Ross was homeless. So I did well, if all I ought to do, I invited Ross to come live with us till he could find a place to live. I can't tell you how thrilled my wife was. <laughs> Ross came home with us, and we, uh, I managed to, through some people, get him a job working at Shoney's, and he had to be at work at 6 o'clock in the morning, and we put an alarm clock in, his, in, in, the, in our guest room. And I'm here to tell you tonight, I think we could have put Big Ben in London in that bedroom. And Ross wouldn't have heard it. So one of us had to get up every morning, go in and wake up Ross, so he could get up and go out and get in his old clunker of a piece of junk car and go off to work. Well, that went on for about three weeks. Then Ross came in and said, two of my tires blew, and the other ones are slick. I said, well, that's okay. I'll front you the money to buy you some new tires. So I went out and bought a set of new tires and put them on Ross's car. Uh, a few days after that, <laughs> they came and repoed Ross's car. <laughs> and my tires went with it. Well, Ross didn't like that, so he did the logical thing. He got drunk. 
And I'd already ready to tell Ross he had to leave because, see, I told Ross he could stay as long till he could find some place to live. And it finally occurred to me, he wasn't looking. He'd found some place to live. <laughs> Excuse me. Then he got drunk. And the last time I saw Ross, I took him down to Fulton County Detox and I dropped him off. And I don't know where Ross is today. I don't know if he's alive or not. He just he disappeared. So, you know, one would think that I learned a lesson about bringing drunks home to live. I didn't. Years later, this young, hippie-looking little character came up to me and asked me to be his sponsor, and I went, no, no, don't need that. And he was persistent. Uh, I don't know if it was two or three times there's been an argument about that, but I finally said yes. And I found out this young fellow had been, uh, you know, out, dropped out of school or kicked out, I'm not sure which, and uh, high, out of high school, and uh, uh, he had a pretty big habit, and he, he uh, funded his habit by breaking into people's homes and stealing their goods and going out and selling them and going through their medicine cabinets for refreshments. And um, uh, his hobby was going around knocking off mailboxes on Saturday night, and this is one I was going to sponsor and ask him to move into our home. And I said, well, you can stay here for a while. He stayed for five years. But he was not like Ross. This one wanted the program. He wanted to get sober. And he did. And he's sitting right here in front of me tonight, almost 27 years sober. Stand up, Scott. And I'm going to tell you, in the last 26 plus years, the line has gotten very gray as to who's sponsoring who. Because there have been many times that Scott's been there for me when I needed him the most. And we've laughed together, and we've cried together, and we've traveled together. And um, uh, I told somebody today, I think of Scott more like a son than I do a sponsee. Uh, and I thank God every day, as does my wife, for Scott being in our lives. Um, now, of course, now I'm approaching 70 years old. I'm too old to have another uh, drunk move into my house, you'd think. <laughs> a little over a year ago, we moved another one in. And last week, he celebrated a year. He is uh, 19 years old. I am 50 years older than he is, a fact he refuses to acknowledge. And um, we have absolutely no similarities whatsoever, except under the umbrella of AA. Uh, I grew up Southern Baptist. He grew up Jewish. Uh, I love classical music and show music. He loves electro and rap. You would not believe these speakers he installed in the trunk of my car. <laughs> the only advantage is I can hear him coming a block and a half away when he's coming home. But I'm going to tell you something. Fifty years difference. Totally different backgrounds, different religions, different philosophies grew up under. 
But when we sit down and we start talking, the language of the heart knows no barriers. It doesn't care about age. It doesn't care about uh, religion. It doesn't care about any of those things. It's just two hearts speaking to each other. It's an amazing phenomenon to me. Words become almost superfluous when the language of the heart kicks in, and I love it. See, one other sponsee I had, something over 20 years ago, a young man came up to me. He was a young African-American man, about 6'4". Looked down at me and said, will you be my sponsor? I went, uh-huh. <laughs> Found out he'd been a dope dealer on the streets of Atlanta and uh, a thief. He'd gotten arrested when he tried to sell a stolen car to an undercover cop and hauled into court. Uh, found guilty, served some time in jail. He was introduced to AA, came out. That's when he asked me to sponsor him. And he said, I'm, I'm going to go back and finish college. I dropped out to sell dope. Now I'm going to get, I want to get my education. So he, I said, good. He went back and he finished college. Then he announced to me, I want to be a lawyer. I'm going to go to law school. I said, that's a lofty goal, but go ahead. He went to law school. He finished law school. He became, he went to work with a prestigious law firm in, in uh, Decatur, just outside Atlanta. And uh, a couple of years later, he and another man split off and started their own law firm. Three years ago, that young man was sworn in as a judge in the same courtroom where he had been sentenced. And last fall, he was licensed to practice law before the United States Supreme Court. And he tried a case before that court, and he won. Now, when I talk about him, his name is Jewel. When I talk about Jewel, I say you can't get here from where he came from but by the grace of God. And I think that's true for many of us right here in this room. From where we came from, the depths that we crawled out of, you can't get to where we are but through the grace of God and through the gift of Alcoholics Anonymous. Jim, how am I doing? Okay. He says I have another hour. Um, <laughs> I told you about my search for it. You see, I thought if I had enough money that that would be it. And over the course of my 50-year career, I at times made a great deal of money. Uh, relatively speaking. It, money was not it. I thought if I had the right enough stuff, that would be it. Big enough cars, fancy enough televisions, big enough this, that, or the other. Stuff was not it. I got a garage full of stuff. You can ask Scott, if you need some stuff, come to my house, I'll give you some. I thought if it was the, I had the right woman, that would be it. I knew the one I was married to wasn't the right one. So I searched high and low for the right woman. Mostly low. But I'd go in bars and I'd sit down and I would scope out the bar. And I'd look down at the end of the bar and I'd see this wonderful vision of beauty. And I would sit and for five minutes I'd rehearse what was going to be the greatest come on line ever spoken. And I would rehearse it over and over and over again. Get it just perfect. And I'd slip off my stool and go to the other end of the bar and slide onto the stool next to this vision of loveliness. And return and look into her beautiful eyes 
and open my mouth and say to her, you go, Sarah, you want to go finish this thing, do thing all right out of here now? <laughs> and I knew she was it because she said, yeah. <laughs> Next morning she wasn't it. And today I'm grateful because I'll tell you the rest of the story. My wife and I, in December of 1982, on the day divorce papers were to be signed, we instead, instead stood before the same minister who had married us 16 years earlier and renewed our vows and we started all over again. And I can tell you tonight that that woman is my best friend, my lover, my pal, and my soulmate. And I'd rather be with her than anybody on the face of this earth. She's not with me tonight, but I can assure you she is in Atlanta, Georgia tonight, thinking about me, and she knows I'm talking about her. And the little girl who wrote in my di her diary, I wish my daddy was dead, today, she, at her, uh, about 20 years ago at her wedding, she asked me to dance the first dance after her uh, new husband with her. She wouldn't tell me what we were going to dance to, but we moved out onto the dance floor and the music began. And the music, the words of the song were, Did you ever know that you're my hero? And everything I want to be, I can fly higher than an eagle. You're the wind beneath my wings. What a miracle had been worked in the lives of this family that had been ripped and shredded and torn apart by the relentless, insidious disease called alcoholism. And yet you, God, sponsorship, the steps in the book, had piece by piece put this family back together again. My daughter has given me two beautiful grandsons, and she even gave one of them my name. What more could I ask for? So it should not, it could not possibly come as a surprise to you that I would conclude tonight by saying, did you ever know you are my heroes? You're everything that I've ever searched for and everything I ever wanted to be. Because you see, one night I was sitting in a meeting. My search for it was over. And I wasn't paying any attention to the readings. We don't ever pay attention when people are reading the readings. Unless they make a mistake and we go, hmm. <laughs> Do you hear that? For some reason that night I was listening. And I heard a young fellow was reading him say, If you want what we have and are willing to go to any lengths to get it. And then I knew that it that Bill Sanders had been searching for all these years was right here in these rooms with you people. So tonight know that you are my heroes and I believe with all my heart that together, together, we can all soar like eagles because he's the wind beneath our wings. Thank you for having me and God bless you.